Well, good morning, everybody. I haven't seen you since Thanksgiving, so I hope it was a good Thanksgiving. We had a um, good Thanksgiving in Oklahoma with our family. Um, and pretty much like every Thanksgiving, I walked into it with great intentions. Um, I was going to stop our third or fourth piece of pumpkin pie and um, did not do that. Um, by the end of the day, I'm loosening my belt, and I was actually thinking about how many days in a row I needed to fast to even out the caloric intake of the day, right? Does anybody else do that? Is that just me? Is that just me? Okay, that's fine. One of my, um, one of my favorite sayings is everything in moderation, including moderation. And it's always around Thanksgiving that I, I like to pull that one out. Everything in moderation, including moderation. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with a little bit of overindulgence because like, you don't want to insult the people who put the meal together, right? You don't want to insult them. Um, and and it's, it's, it's every now and then, right? It's the, the big holidays that we come together with family and friends and you just, you just kind of overindulge a little bit, right? Everything in moderation, including moderation. Um, so... There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I kind of want to start us thinking, um, turn the corner on Thanksgiving and move towards Christmas. Like, where does, where does all of this excess thinking come from? Okay? Just, 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 just this little idea that I think a little bit is good, more is better, and a lot is best. Right? We think, think, and before you know it, you know, you're scraping the brown sugar and pecans off the top of the sweet potatoes, and you're only eating that, and you're putting whipped cream on the green bean casserole, and just a little bit more than you probably should, right? Little is good, more is better, a lot is best. Have you ever thought, like, what gets us there? How do we get to that place? And isn't it the idea that if, if I just had a little bit more, then I'll be satisfied? just had a little bit more, then I'll be satisfied. You know what's amazing about the Thanksgiving lunch or dinner, whenever you have it? You eat it, you're stuffed, and four hours later, you're hungry again, <laughs> right? It's like you can never quite get to that level of, of satisfaction. We stuff ourselves, and four hours later, we think I'm kind of hungry. And, and again, this isn't just about Thanksgiving. You round the corner on Thanksgiving, you start headed towards Christmas, and this idea of a little is good, more is better, a lot is best continues kind of to overtake our thinking, kind of overtake even our living to some extent. We got a little bit of a break of it or a break from it last year just because of COVID, but it's, it's back, right? There's this idea that we need to go, go, go and spin, spin, spin and stress, stress, stress and go, go, go and spin, spin, spin and stress, stress, stress. And Christmas just won't be as satisfying if we don't. If we don't do this, if we don't go there, if we don't cram our schedules, if we don't cram, you know, presents underneath the tree, if we don't do these kinds of things, it's just not going to be as good as it could be because a little is good. More is better. But a lot is best. And, and again, if we're not careful, we fly right through Christmas. We end up on the other side. And, and I don't know if you can identify with this or not, but sometimes you just kind of get to the other side of Christmas and you feel like you missed something. You feel like you blew right past, you know, some of the reason for why we even celebrate Christmas. You have a few more regrets, a little bit more debt, a few more pounds than you really wanted. And so this year, 
I'm asking some of you to join me again. I'm asking some of you to maybe join me for the very first time in doing something different when it comes to how we celebrate Christmas. You heard a little bit of it last week from Nikki, but, but I'm going to ask you to conspire with me to conspire with me. It seems like conspiracies are the popular things these days, but um, we've actually been doing it before it was cool. We've been conspiring for about the last 11 years or so. And I'm just going to ask those of you who, who've already done this with us to join us again. If you've never conspired with us at, at Advent during Christmas season, I want, you to, I want to invite you to do it again. It's not a real Christmassy word. Like, conspiracy doesn't give me chills whenever I hear it, right? It's not, it's not really that one of those things, but... But I'm just going to ask you guys, find, find your inner James Dean and rebel with me, right? Okay? And, and for some of you, that's not real hard. I say, let's find our inner rebel, and you're like, where do I sign up, Tim? For others, it's a little bit harder for you to think about rebelling around Christmas. But if you're here today, or if you're watching with us, joining with us online, and, and you're a follower of Jesus, maybe nobody's ever told you before. But you actually come from a very long line of rebels. Like, this is your tradition. This is your history. This is your heritage. We come from long lines of rebels. There's a, there's a, I have a sign in my office that reminds me of this often. And, and the sign says, we have confused Christianity with terminal niceness. And there's a bit of that that we have. We just, we just want to be nice, and then there's this Kansas nice thing that we have going on in, in Kansas or in Midwest, maybe, where we just, we don't want to rock the boat, don't want to upset anybody. We just kind of want to go, and again, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Tim. I do that all the time, but for most of us, we just, we just kind of go along with the flow. So I'm asking you, those of you who are followers of Jesus, to come and rebel with me because you come from a long line of rebels. Right? And let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, find Luke chapter 2. Okay? This is a, a, it's a familiar story. We know this story. It's a beautiful story. Uh, we read it pretty much every year around this time of year. And it's, 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 a, comfortable, it's a comfortable story, right? Speaking of comfort, would you throw that to me? You guys know what this is? This, this is, um, no, it's not a jungle. It does come from the jungle. This is a soft, plush, leopard print blanket. And it's comfortable. It is really, really comfortable. It's comfortable. It's warm. It's so good. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. We read this story every year. It's so good. It's so comfortable. It's so warm and cozy, right? The shepherds, the, the manger, the star, the magi. But sometimes, comfortable can be distracting, can it? Sometimes you get into a comfortable place and you miss what you're actually supposed to hear. Sometimes we get so comfortable with this story. Yeah, okay, preacher's going to read Luke 2 again because Christmas is coming. And we completely miss the point of why we have the story. This is a dangerous story 
written in a dangerous moment in history. We've actually already read the first clue. Did you catch it? Jesus was born in the days of the Caesars. What does that mean? Well, during this time of history, the, the empire of Rome stretched from India to England. It was huge. They had pretty much everybody in the known world under their control. And through a series of bloody, brutal civil wars in Rome, a man by the name of Octavius emerges as the leader around 27 BC. He changes his name to Augustus, which means majesty or deity. And he's a brilliant leader. He's a brilliant leader. He brings about what we know of as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the people of Rome love him for it because they're tired of war. Bring about the Pax Romana. There are writings from this period of time that praise him, that talk about how he was ushering in the golden age in Rome. Caesar Augustus is the one who has been sent by the gods to bring peace on earth. Sound familiar? Something starts to creep in to the religious atmosphere in the Roman Empire. We're going to learn a little bit of Latin today. Some of you, will, this will be a reminder or a review. Some of this will be brand new to some of you. The Roman Empire had a state religion called the Religio. The Religio, its roots were found in the worship of the Roman gods and goddesses that you learned about in high school or college. But it carried with it this belief that Caesar, whoever was in power in Rome, was a god. Not uppercase G, but lowercase g. He was a god. And the interesting thing is, when you read history, most Romans didn't really believe this. They didn't believe Caesar was a god. They, they, they knew he was just a man. But they participated in the religio because you don't mess with tradition. You don't mess with your social obligation to the state, and you really don't mess with the Roman economy. Because that's what has brought about the Pax Romana. All their money is what has allowed them to send troops all over the known world to make sure there's no uprisings. That's, I mean, it's just unpatriotic not to participate. So even if you don't believe it, you still participated. Now, on a, on a family or an individual basis, you could worship whoever and however you wanted. If you had your own set of gods or your own gods, you just worshiped them. That was called the superstitio. The superstitio, Rome was very tolerant of your own personal religion. In the privacy of your own home, you worship whoever you want. You worship however you want. But in public, how you spend your time, who you spend your time around, how you spend your money, you participated in the religio. And here's, here's what's interesting. The Caesar before Augustus, um, you know him as Julius Caesar, he was declared divine. He was, he was kind of the first one declared as a god, but Augustus wasn't comfortable or willing to take on that title. He never identified himself as God. Instead, he pointed to his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, as God, which would make him the son of God, right? He was okay with that title. So you see Roman coins from that era with statements on them that said this, salvation is to be found in none other than Augustus. Or there is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. Those statements were stamped onto Roman coins of that day. It was all a part of the religio. So as you go through the first century, you see this happening with each success of Caesar, but it's on a collision course with another movement that we're familiar with because 
Now, there's a group of people who are worshiping a crucified rabbi who they say has been resurrected. And they start saying things like his resurrection is proof that he is the one true God, not Caesar. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And around 30 BC, the leader of that movement in Jerusalem, his name was Peter, is dragged before the religious leaders in a trial. And you know exactly, some of you who know, you know exactly what Peter says. Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. See, we read that, and, and, and it's powerful, and it's hopeful, and we know who he's talking about. It, our culture kind of views it as narrow-minded, because really, there's only one person only one name by which we can be saved, and it's, it's a feel-good, printed-on-a-Christian-T-shirt kind of statement, right? Some people, again, think it's narrow today, but when Peter said it, it wasn't just narrow-minded. It was subversive. It was rebellious. This was a political statement. He essentially says, just so we're all clear, religious leaders, those of you who are in bed with Rome... Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is rebellious stuff. In fact, in the coming days and the years, people are going to be killed for saying and believing this. They're not killed because they believe Jesus was God. Rome is full of so-called gods. And you worship in, in the privacy of your own home however you want. So they were not killed because of that. They were killed because they refused to participate in the religio. They, those early followers of Jesus said, Caesar is not God and we will not worship at the altar of tradition or economy or social obligation. We will not. Here's a, 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 a quote from Francis Schaeffer. He's an author. He says it like this. Let us not forget why the Christians were killed. They were not killed because they worshiped Jesus. Nobody cared who worshiped whom so long as the worshiper did not disrupt the unity of the state centered in the formal worship of Caesar. The reason the Christians were killed was because they were rebels. They worshiped Jesus as God and they worshiped the infinite personal God only. The Caesars would not tolerate this worshiping of the one God only. It was counted as treason. So maybe, maybe nobody has ever told you this, but if you're a follower of Jesus... You actually come from a long line of rebels. It's in your heritage. It's a part of your tradition as a follower of Jesus. So with that as the backdrop, let's go back to Luke chapter 2. Okay? I, wanna, I want you to see what's happening in this remote, remote corner of the Roman Empire. Everybody goes back to their own town to register because the politicians want their money. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Okay. Here's verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Bethlehem, this is our next clue. Jesus is born in the time of the Caesars in Bethlehem. What do we know about Bethlehem? Bethlehem is this, this little village just south of Jerusalem. Um, they had some famous people who came from there. Ruth and King David were both from Bethlehem, but that's been a thousand years. Uh, Bethlehem is kind of this podunk, 
you know, kind of hick town. Um, it sits between the mountains and the wilderness, so it's full of farmers and shepherds and hunters, okay? This is the kind of town that Johnny Cash would sing a song about. Um, this is the kind of town where NASCAR is really big. Um, everything closes the first day of deer season in Bethlehem, okay? This is Bethlehem, small little town. But for this, for a sleepy little town that didn't seem to have much of anything going for it, Bethlehem had everything going for it if you were Jewish. So the prophet Micah, Hebrew prophecy from 700 years before Jesus, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 700 years before Jesus, God says through Micah, there is one coming. He is my answer to your problem. And one who has been since the beginning of time. He has been from the ancient of days. And where does he come from? Bethlehem. He comes from Bethlehem, this tiny podunk little village, a remote corner of the Roman Empire. So Jesus was born in the time of Caesars in Bethlehem. Now, turn back to, to Matthew chapter 2. Again, another text, um, a Christmas story. The te- we love this, okay? But don't miss this. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Did you catch it? Did you see it? Two kings in one sentence. Two kings, two kingdoms, two agendas. Houston, we have a problem. That never turns out well. And let me, let me tell you about just one of those kings. His name is Herod. History remem- remembers him as Herod the Great, but it depends on how you define great. So um, Rome rules most of the known world, which means they're, they're going to be these outlying provinces that Caesar would have to appoint and entrust other leaders to rule for him, okay? Herod is one of those people in one of those outlying provinces, And by most accounts, at least maybe by most modern-day accounts, Herod would be considered successful. Had a lot of money, um, a lot of fame, built a lot of really big, beautiful buildings, okay? But Herod was never satisfied. Herod always wanted a little bit more. So um, as you already heard Pastor Mark say, these stargazers from the east, they're from Persia. That's modern-day Iran and Iraq, show up in Jerusalem, and they'd been studying the stars, and they believed one of them was pointing to the birth of this new king, and they wanted to know where he was. So they show up in Jerusalem months, maybe even a couple years after Jesus is born, trying to find him. And he obviously wasn't born in the palace, right? Which explains verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. If you ever heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy? That's, that's what's happening here. If King Herod isn't happy, nobody in Jerusalem is going to be happy. And Herod hears that this baby is born, that's a king that wasn't born in my palace. And in turn, 
Everybody else in Jerusalem is not happy. Herod's at the end of his reign at this point. Herod is so paranoid that people would plot against him that he outlaws public gatherings. You couldn't gather in public in, in, in more than two or three people because Herod thought if there's a group of people gathering in public, they're talking about how to overthrow me. They're talking about how to kill me. He's so paranoid. He outlaws public gatherings. Herod executed people at the drop of the hat if they were even remotely threatening. Herod had 10 wives, only loved one of them, and killed all of them. Every single wife he had executed. Um, Caesar Augustus, you can read this in, in, in history. You, you can check it out yourself. Caesar Augustus used to joke that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because as a non-practicing Jew, he would never uh, butcher a non-kosher pig, but he had two of his sons killed. This is the great King Herod. He was never satisfied. Always needed more, more money, more respect, more power, more buildings. And, and, and for Herod, satisfaction was always just out of reach. He just couldn't get it. Mick Jagger was right. So when these stargazers show up and they start asking about this newborn king, he's disturbed. He calls the chief priest and the teachers of the law in. He starts asking, if this newborn king wasn't born in my palace, where was he born? And they know. Micah 5.2 says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Herod flies off the deep end, orders the wholesale manslaughter of every baby boy under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. And this is not... To, to discredit or to, to, to say any loss of life is any more, is, is any less than any loss of life. But Bethlehem's a small town. We're talking maybe 10, 15 baby boys, maybe. But can you imagine how that town reacted to that? Because in small towns, everything is big. And 10, 15 Baby boys, murdered. Tries to murder the king of kings, but he isn't successful. So I just want you to notice how all of this went down. This is just the tip of the iceberg, right? This is just a little bit of the story. I want you to notice how all this went down. Our rebel God slips into the story of mankind under the nose of a far-reaching empire, under the nose of a tyrant king. And we know the rest of the story. Because Emmanuel, little by little, year by year, story by story, heart by heart, turns history upside down. And some of you, I know your stories. It's my story. Emmanuel has turned your life upside down. He's reversed the curse. He's given you a hope. He's given you a future. He's given you grace. And he does that person by person, heart by heart. It wasn't by force. God doesn't, God doesn't kick in the door like the SWAT team. He comes in. He slips in quietly and starts what Philip Yancey calls a revolution of grace. And maybe you're still not comfortable with the whole rebelling thing, but I'm telling you, when you look at the narrative and when you understand what's happening kind of in the social
the place. And not just when Jesus was born, but as he grows up, as he teaches, as he lives, as he loves, even in his death. Okay, so what does that mean for us? What, what does it mean that we come from a long line of rebels? What are we supposed to do with that? And especially, what are we supposed to do, for, what does that mean for Christmas, right? And so let me, let me just start with a question and, and see where this goes, okay? Is it possible? Is it possible? Little lowercase g kind of gods. Is it, is it possible that there are lots of little Caesars in our world? Not the pizza, right? But these, these little rulers, these little... These, these ideas, these things, these people, these companies that just call for our attention, that call for our affection, that tell us, I'm, I'm the one who will bring you happiness. I'm the one through which you can be saved. And I know it's shocking to hear a preacher say this in church, but I do believe that there are For your attention, that vie for my affection. And, and all I'm saying is, what if we rebelled? <laughs> what if we said no? What if we refused those modern day Caesars and instead followed the example of our rebel God by joining and continuing the revolution of grace? I think that's a better way. It's a better way to live. It's a better way to celebrate Christmas. So I'm just going to state the obvious now. All year long, we are inundated with messages and advertisements and commercials and social media. Some of them are obvious, some of them are not so obvious. But I'm telling you, at Christmas, it goes into overdrive. Every single year, if you really want your Christmas to be special, if, if you really want your kids to be happy, if you really want that never forget kind of Christmas, then, then you, need, you need this dish soap. Right? Like, you, you've got to have this kind of car. You've got to upgrade. You need a newer, shinier, better one, and then you'll be satisfied. Like, they're there. It's there. Whether we recognize it or not, it's there. And then on top of all those messages is this little twist that's happening in our culture right now. It's this message about the economy. It's about the economy and it's about what is COVID going to do next and what about all the container ships sitting off the coast of LA that can't get product to stores? What are we going to do? Like it's so subtle, but it's there. And, and listen, I know many of us would never say Christmas will be ruined if I can't give my kids all the gifts they want. We're not going to say that. I, like, like I can't celebrate the birth of Jesus without getting further into debt, Tim. I just can't. Like, nobody's going to say that. Nobody's, nobody's going to say all the gifts I'm going to get this year will satisfy my soul. We're not going there. I, I know we won't go there. But I do wonder, and I, I don't know this, but I just wonder. I wonder if we feel this unspoken obligation to help the economy. Because if I help the economy, then my retirement goes up. 
and my 401k goes up and my interest rates go down. And Tim, if we don't do this, if I don't spend more and participate in this, our economy might not recover. Interest rates are going to keep raising. Inflation is going to get worse. And I, I don't want to be unpatriotic. Have you noticed this? Like, it's, it's so subtle. It's so subtle. And I'm not even going to get into the circular logic of it. I'm just saying, let's call it what it is. It's a religio. It, it's, 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 a, it's a religion of the masses. It's a religion of the state. It's worshiping at the altar of consumerism. And whether, whether we see it or not, that, has, that is what Christmas has become for many people, including many followers of Jesus. And I am just as guilty of getting sucked into it as anybody else. We live in the empire of more. And, and that message that we constantly face is you need this to be satisfied. You need one of these to feel good about yourself. You need a better one, shinier one, the updated worship one. You're going to miss out if you don't. And I'm just reminding you, or maybe I'm telling you for the first time, as a rebel follower of Jesus, you can say no to that empire. You can say no to, to overindulging, to overspending, to overconsuming. You don't have to worship at that altar. You don't have to. And, and I know, I know some of you, some of you are thinking, here we go, here's where Tim ruins Christmas, right? Ho, ho, humbug, right? Please hear me. I am not saying Christmas gifts are bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't spend on Christmas gifts. I love giving and getting Christmas gifts. Like, I'm not saying, I'm just asking us, again, to wrestle with questions. Like, how much is enough? And how much is too much? And, and what are we teaching our kids, not just our own kids, but the kids that we're connected with. What are we teaching our kids about the birth of Christ in our spending? Is, is overdoing it, is overindulging, is going, going, going really going to help us worship Jesus at Christmas? I, that's all I'm asking. Would you wrestle with some of these things and maybe even have honest conversations about them? How much is enough? How much is too much? What does it look like for us to actually worship Jesus in our spending? At Christmas, because we're not saying no to celebrating Christmas a certain way. We're saying yes to celebrating Christmas a better way. And, and part of the ways that we can do that is by spending less. It's just part of the way. Okay? And, and let me get real specific. Okay? Here's, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you, if you're going to participate with us in this, I'm just asking you to spend 10% less on gifts this year than you did last year. 10% left. And that, that, would, that means for some of you, you need to get out receipts and credit card statements and figure out how much you spent last year before you figure out that number. But what does it look like for you? What does it look like for us to spend 10% less than we did last year? Like, like maybe it's a family thing. Maybe you sit down and you have a conversation around this. How can we spend less this year on us and use that money to bless somebody else? Maybe that's one way to do it. That could be a formative conversation, especially if you've got really young kids. What does that look like? Because I, I, I throw that out there as just an idea. But if we don't do anything practical with this, if we don't take some action steps, 
I think we'll just continue to operate in the same belief that a little is good, more is better, a lot is best. Little is good, more is better, a lot is best. And when you live like that, contentment and peace and joy and satisfaction, it's always just a little bit out of reach because I can never quite get it. I can never quite be satisfied. I mean, <laughs> I'm asking you to rebel. That's all I'm asking you, even if it's a small rebellion, even if it's only 10% less, rebel against the empire of more. Rebel against the Caesar of overconsumption. And maybe, I don't know this, like, I don't, I don't think it works linear like this, but what if you spent 10% less on gifts this year and that allowed you to worship Jesus 10% more? I don't know if it works like that or not, but maybe it would. Maybe it would change the way that you approach Christmas. So I'll end with this. There's an interview done um, in Time Magazine. I think this was about a decade ago. There's a guy um, wrote a book called Scroogeonomics, Why You Shouldn't Buy Presents for the Holidays. I love that title. But um, in this interview, and just so we're clear, I'm not endorsing that book because I haven't read the whole thing. I've just read the article where, where the, he does the interview with him. But in the, in the interview, he talked about how people are never really satisfied. And he has, he has this data to back it up. I don't have data today to back this up. But in the interview, he talks about how people are never really satisfied with their holiday spending or gift giving. Um, he talks about how, this is really interesting, percentage-wise, we spend less on Christmas today than our parents and grandparents did. I thought that was really interesting. Um, he talks a little bit about the misconception that spending more is actually better for the economy. And then they end the interview by asking him this question. Do you expect to have an influence or is this a totally uphill fight? Basically, do you really think this is going to do any good? And here's his answer. I hope to have a small influence. I think people are ready. I'm not the only person who sees some madness in our behavior, and so I think people are looking for opportunities to do good for the world. I think people enjoy giving. There's something joyful about giving, and I'm not against that. I'm happy to see the same amount of spending, but if we could just eliminate the really sloppy stuff and maybe shunt some of the gift-giving to good causes, that seems consistent with people's religious goals, and it might even be good for the world. Now, I don't, I don't know this guy's faith. I don't know if he believes about Jesus or Scripture, this idea of God becoming one of us. But I agree with him. I think he's right. I think if we stopped spending the same amount and stopped the craziness as we, as we normally do, we reroute a percentage or, or a portion of it to causes and to people who need it a whole lot more than I need another pair of socks. A whole lot more than some of the stuff that we buy. I mean, do, do you even remember what you got for Christmas last year? I, I don't, and, and I got a terrible memory, so that's part of it. But do you even own what you got for Christmas last year? I think if we take some of that and put it somewhere else. What he says is right. We might just do something good in the world. In fact, I, I don't just think that, I know it. Because I've watched you do it over and over and over again for the last 10 years. 
I've seen you take a percentage or take a, a, a portion of your money and instead of spending it on Christmas stuff, you dig water wells in Haiti. So a mom doesn't have to wake up every single morning and walk five miles just to get water for her kids. I've seen you build a school and a church in Sierra Leone. I've seen you build a kitchen for a trash dump community in the Philippines. You've done untold amounts of good in this world because you've decided to rebel and spend less. And so I'm just standing before you today. I'm not standing, I'm sitting before you today, asking you to spend 10% less this year and use those resources to give to somebody else. We're actually gonna try and raise about $40,000 this year during Abbott Conspiracy. We'll talk more about where those funds are going in the coming weeks and give you a chance to participate in our Advent Conspiracy offering at our Christmas Eve services. It's an audacious goal. It's pretty big. It's beyond our normal giving. But I've seen you guys over and over and over again do this. And I'm just asking you to do it again. And some of you, if you're new or you're new-ish or maybe you're visiting with us, maybe you think I'm a fool for thinking that a group of people in the empire of the United States of America in a sleepy little town called Topeka could still be used by Jesus to change the world. Maybe. But I'm still going to ask you to do it. I'm still going to ask you to rebel. I'm asking you to spend less so you can give more. And we'll talk about that next week. But for the next few weeks, you're going to hear words like shepherds, and manger, and Bethlehem, and Jesus, and swaddling clothes, and we're going to sing joy to the world, and we're going to sing all of these songs, and every time you hear the story, whenever you hear something attached to the story, I just want you to think, this is us rebelling. We're saying no to the empire of more. We're saying no to those little Caesars that call for our attention and our affection. And you remember, when we sing those songs and we, te we tell these stories and we look in Scripture, you remember your rebel God slipped into history to rescue you. And you remember that we have the same opportunity because of the revolution of grace that he started. We have the same opportunity to step into somebody else's story and rescue them. And all you have to do is rebel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for some of us, this is a review. For some of us, this is brand new. And regardless of where we find ourselves on that spectrum, God, my, my prayer is simply that your spirit would show us what we should do with this, with what we've heard, and then you would give us the courage to walk out of this place and to do it. That we would worship you, not just in these moments where we're together in this space, but that we would figure out, that we would look to, that we would remind ourselves, that your spirit would remind us of what it looks like to worship you tomorrow or Tuesday when we're on Amazon.com or Wednesday or Thursday when we're out shopping, whatever... Whatever that looks like, God, would you remind us that you've invited us into this story, that you've asked us that for this generation, for this point in history, to join you in it and to bring bits and pieces of heaven to this earth as you taught us to pray. 
God, would you help us, not just as individuals, not just as families, but as a collective body, as your church, to look for how we worship and how we celebrate Christmas collectively in such a way that it honors you and that it blesses other people, not just ourselves. Would you help us to push against the empire of more? Would you help us to push against overconsumption and overindulgence for your glory, not ours? And we ask this, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.